you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Welcome back, everyone, to this episode of the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. You know, COVID-19 has devastated much of our industry. Some are really on the edge of survival, some are thriving, lots are in between. We know that sales are hugely down across the board. We know that even some of the major, major forces in our industry, the largest chains, are reeling and they've lost millions and millions in revenues. And their restaurant workers have been laid off. There's been so much of that and afflicted. And now it's about rebuilding. Now it's about getting back to a new normal, they call it. Well, in this week's episode, I'm excited to be talking to Mr. Sean Weisbart. Now, he is a partner in Blank Rome, which is a New York City law firm that specializes in nonprofit 5013C companies. And this episode is really relevant because um, Sean is working with some of the leading chefs in the business to create charities to help the afflicted restaurant industry and workers out there that need help and need to get back on their feet. We're talking about Thomas Keller and Danny Meyer and Daniel Balud. I mean, again, the biggest chef names and restaurant owner operators in the business working with this firm to set up these charities. So we're also going to talk about what you can do if you're so inclined to rally together with other operators or even do this yourself to set up charities and what the benefits are and what the hurdles are and what your concern should be. It's going to be a robust episode, so stay with us. Welcome back, everyone, to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. You know these are engaging topics that help restaurants rock their profits and build their brands, deliver amazing guest service experiences, but mostly the episodes lately are focused on this pandemic and the crisis that is unprecedented in our industry. So highly relevant today, I'm pleased to introduce Mr. Sean Weisbart. Now, he is a partner in a leading law firm in New York City, and Sean specializes in tax-exempt organizations. And what's really relevant about this episode is he is working with some of the leading restaurant groups in this country, some top chefs that everyone's heard of, and they're creating charities that are going to help their industry, our industry, uh, to uh, you know raise money that's going to aid all the furloughed workers in the hospitality business. So welcome to the show, Sean. I'm so glad you're here. It's really great to be here and, and to have an opportunity to talk about this important work that's helping so many Americans in, in the culinary community. Well, again, you know, it's so incredible to me how resilient this business is. I mean, we've never seen anything like this, but we are all just digging deep and we're all trying to make our own little impact to to just get everybody through this, you know? And this is particularly interesting in that, you know, like I said, some of the leading chefs in the country, if not the world, because they're international chefs and they have restaurants in multiple countries, of course, and they've really banded together. And I, I want to hear all about what that inspiration was, how that idea came to be, how they approached you. I know you're also involved in a very prestigious um, organization. You're on the board of directors of a firm, or I should say an organization called Mentor. And there's a culinary competition called the Bocus d'Or. And that is, take. I guess it takes place in France. So we're going to talk about that. But let's start with um, the inspiration behind your work with these leading restaurant groups and where it's going and how it came to be and all of that. Take us through it, please. Sure. So Roger, just like you said, you know, the culinary community is so strong and so resilient and, and really looking to help. And it was really thanks to my work with the Bocuse d'Or and, and being on the uh, director of Mentor, 
that I was connected with a lot of chefs in the culinary community. And a number of them called me on a Sunday. This was before New York City or anywhere else was even quarantined. Mm -hmm. And we talked about how we can help because they knew this was going to be a very big problem for the community. People were not going to restaurants as much. They, They were talking about quarantines. And on that call, we got together and talked about this idea of employer-sponsored charities and disaster relief charities. Now, thankfully, for a number of years, no one was talking about these things because disaster relief charities were really created after September 11th, Hurricane Katrina, the terrible catastrophes that have happened in the past two decades. But we, we came up with this idea that we could do this for people financially impacted by coronavirus. And instantly, a number of these chefs um, were, were ready to sign up and help their people because their people were so important to contributing to their own success in the restaurant. And so literally the next day on Monday, I had formed the first uh, disaster relief charity. Um, and many others following uh, a suit. And in the first week, I, I can't mention all of the names, but I can mention that in the first week, I started uh, charities for Union Square Hospitality Group, uh, which owns a number of uh, big restaurants in New York City and elsewhere. Um, Thomas Keller Restaurant Group uh, and the, the Swagney Restaurant Group started by Gavin Kaysen in Minnesota. And then we've had a number of others really across the country that have followed suit. Uh, and really wanting to help their people, in, in many cases, over a thousand employees who have been furloughed. And this has really been a means uh, to help them. And so we've been very proud of it. That's fantastic, Sean. Let me ask you a question timeline wise. I mean, this whole pandemic really started to hit in January, you know, when it started to come across the, you know, the Atlantic and whatnot. And it was going around the world, of course, and we were waiting and watching to see what happens. What was your timeline in starting to, well, when did you first get that phone call? What month would that have been? What time? And and how long did it take to put all these programs in place? And are they finished now? And I, I obviously want to know what the end result sure. will be or what it hopes to be, but give us a sense of timing on this. Absolutely. So, you know, in January, I mean, other than the president uh, stopping flights uh, to China, there really wasn't much talk about this in the United States or New York at that time. And so it was really March where I first got the phone call, I think, where reality set in across yeah. the country. This, And um, it was at that point where we, we, got, we got these things up and running. So there, I, there wasn't much talk about it in January or February. I don't remember. I remember talking about it with my wife and thinking, oh, you know, I guess this is no big deal. I thought I was going to be going skiing the week after I started these charities. It really was out of nowhere that this happened. So I got the call and we formed the charities right away. And so the, the question about the timeline of it is really one of how you form a charity. And it's... It, it, it's almost a two-step process. You first have to form a nonprofit entity under state law. And here's an example of where the IRS is very generous, which is not something people think of with the IRS all the time. But actually, the day you form that nonprofit entity under state law, you form a nonprofit corporation, all contributions on that day become tax deductible going forward, provided that the, the organization, this new nonprofit corporation, timely submits its application to the IRS to become a 501c3 and that the IRS approves the application. So actually, it's really beginning on the day of formation and we're able to get these these entities formed within a day. Um, 
they can start operating it and receive tax deductible contributions, which is so helpful in attracting donors and growing the fund that they can then distribute to their employees. And so we have a number of these up and running already. Well, that's very interesting because part of this podcast, I would hope, and we both would hope that this is going to inspire other leaders in this industry on a small level, on a medium level, on a big level, it doesn't matter, to get together to see what we can all do to help. So I'm very curious about the process. Now, it it seemed like that happened very quickly, or at least the filing happened quickly, but the planning process and the goals of this, and that's going to be different for different organizations maybe, or maybe it's very similar, but I'm just curious what the initial goals were and did those goals need to adapt or change when the chefs came to you and said, this is what we want to do. And you said, yeah, this will work, but that's got to change a little bit to shift to state laws. And obviously state laws are going to vary from uh, state to state. Isn't that true? Unquestionably. So Mm. the overarching goal of this was we want to help our people who are now without a job because no one's coming to the restaurant. They're not paid anymore. They're furloughed. We want to have a fund to help them. We've got to do it. There was such passion to create this. So that was the overarching goal. Now, my job as the exempt organization's lawyer is to structure this in a way that they're going to get approval as a 501c3. Yes. And so if the IRS doesn't allow um, you to create a charity to give money to a specifically named individual. So I can't, if I know someone who's dying, I, even though that might be a charitable cause and maybe they're poor and they don't have money to pay for their medical care, I can't create a charity to benefit that specific person because otherwise it would be like the IRS was giving me an income tax deduction for giving money to that person and they don't view that as necessarily fair. Yes. So the two big things that we had to work through with all of the clients, and this is true with any charity um, that, that's going to help individuals, is we had to create a class of beneficiaries that was indeterminable, that couldn't be so that couldn't result in specific individuals being identified. So it couldn't be the 30 employees in the front of the house of this restaurant. That's not a good charitable class. We had to make it all of the past and current and future employees of the restaurant group. And we made it also those impacted by the COVID-19 crisis and future crises. So that way, if the IRS was going to question us when we submitted the application about whether the class of beneficiaries was identifiable, we would say it's not because this charity will exist in the future for future benef- for future employees who have other emergency situations um, that are that are caused not only by COVID nineteen but by other uh, situations, both disasters or just personal emergencies. So it's really broad based. It's not just specifically focused on this pandemic. It could be any natural disaster or any unexpected act of God or anything that we just can't see around uh, corners right now. Yes, the way we've structured these, yes. And then the other big thing that the charities had to figure out hmm. is that they had to come up with objective criteria to distribute out the grants. It couldn't be you know, this, this haphazard approach where they decide we'll give this person a grant, we won't give this person a grant. They had to have objective criteria and a process in place by which their employees applied for a grant. Um, There was a board um, that was appointed. And by the way, the board, a majority of the board cannot be uh, what we call substantial influencers of the restaurant group. So this creates this independence from the chefs. So the chefs were not even controlling this. Interesting. And actually the board members were disproportionately 
um, you know, rank and file employees of the rest of the restaurants. So, you know, people in the front of the house, chefs, <coughs> waiters, um, they were really the ones making the decisions. The majority of directors were not the owners or, or wow. in the restaurant. And so they had the control. We came up with grant making policies that set up a, objective criteria. And then the, the board follows it and, and doles out the money that's been raised. Where do the funds come from? Variety of sources? So they do. I mean, you know, one of the good things I think about restaurants is that there's a there's a community of patrons of the restaurant who are looking to give. And I think that makes this charity, this type of a charity successful. Mm-hmm. The restaurants, there obviously are other industries as well where a similar model could be followed. And, and we, we've talked to a number of um the companies outside of restaurants who are, who are talking about this as well. But um, yes, they come, I think from inside. So there can be, you know, key people, executives, owners who are giving money. Then there may be employees who even want to give money to the extent they're able. They're giving a little, in some cases, small amounts from paychecks are being given directly to these charities and then patrons. Um, they are getting big donations from sponsors of, of restaurants, you know, Restaurants buy a lot of food, buy a lot of alcohol. So I'm encouraging them, go reach out to the people Suppliers. that you've been supporting for decades Absolutely. and ask them to help out. And, and they're very receptive. Yeah, this is fascinating stuff. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious about hurdles because there had to be hurdles. And a moment ago, you said that the board of directors couldn't be controlled or have any majority presence by these top industry chefs or any of the leaders that helped put this idea in place. But now you're going to the rank and file and you're going to people that work within the industry and you needed to guide them through this process. And what comes to mind is, uh, well, I'm a restaurant owner myself and I've been in this business for 20 plus years or whatnot. And I've been applying for numerous government relief programs. And I want to get into that a little deeper because there seems to be some overlap here in funds that might be available to an independent restaurant or to chain restaurants and all that sort of thing through paycheck protection program and all that sort of thing. But that pro- those programs have shifted and changed and they're still evolving, even though they've been signed, you know, by the president and whatnot. And, you know, some companies have received funds and some have yet to receive. And we're wondering what the timing is and all that. Was this a simple process or did you go through a whole bunch of hurdles you had to neg- navigate? Because you specialize in this stuff, right? But was this a unique case? Was it different? Did it have any overlap with prior work you've done? I mean, tell, take us no. there. You know, yes and no. It was unique in that, you know, I'm fortunate to have not lived as a lawyer, uh, really, through setting through the other crises that have happened where we've had to set up disaster relief charities. Because, you know, I graduated law school in 2007. So this was, you know, after September 11th, um, you know, New York, where I practiced, wasn't impacted so much by the hurricanes. Um, they were more yes. regionally focused, I think, those types of charities. So it, this was really the first time in my career that we had this huge uh, crisis across right. the country right. that we Absolutely. had to use these types of charities. Now, my law firm had had done some of these um, unisolated instances before, but um, so that was unique. But the process by which um, a nonprofit becomes a 501c3 is the same, whether you're setting up this type of disaster relief charity or whether you're setting up, you know, an amateur sports um, competition, after school sports programs, um, arts organizations, science-based organizations. I mean, the types of charities I've set up 
are just really run the gamut based on anyone's specific interest in be, being philanthropic. So that process was somewhat similar, except that these charities are focused on grants to individuals, which you know does have different unique issues. But the, the process of becoming a 501c3, whether you're doing an after-school sports program sure. or the mm-hmm. restaurant relief fund, is the same. That's the straightforward part, because a 5013C is a 5013C. They're just different entities doing different things. So some of these chefs, obviously, I mean, you mentioned Union Square Hospitality Group. Everyone has heard of Danny Meyer and Thomas Keller, of course, numerous restaurants, and Daniel Boulou and international restaurants all over the place. I mean, these people have far-ranging impacts and whatnot. But let's talk about what the end goals and what the results will be who will actually benefit within these restaurants? Because these are large organizations. Is it just for those specific organizations or is it a broad ranging more of an industry charity where other restaurants can take part in this if they don't form their own charitable organization? How does that work? So the individual charities that we've set up within the restaurant group are for employees, former employees of the restaurant group. Of those Um, groups, yeah. Of those groups. Now, there are Mentor, for example, the charity that I'm on, I'm on the board of, and, you know, Thomas Keller, Danielle Ballou, Jerome Bocuz, and then we have a culinary council of, I think it's about 50 of the top chefs in the country. Um, We are forming a philanthropic fund, and then we're having an independent committee that's Mm -hmm. going to determine where the dollars we're raising are going to go up, go, and you know those are going to go to, to to support the culinary workforce that has helped you know the culinary community thrive in America. And and by the way, it's critical that we support the culinary community because if we don't, you know, there's a risk that these restaurants may not reopen. Of and course. so we got it. So mentor's purpose really is to th- is to continue to to make sure we can help out so that culinary excellence can continue to thrive in America. But there are probably any number of charities um, that may be looking to help um, individuals, but the ones we've formed are specific to that to that restaurant group. Now, you could, by the way, it would be possible to form a charity among a number of restaurant groups, among you know a specific region, if you had people who came together to do it, and it could it could support employees from a number of restaurant groups. The, the issue is going to be that you want to make sure that the funds you're raising are going to the people you care about. Of course. And of course. it can't be a free for all because if you have too many possible beneficiaries, you probably won't be able to get enough funds. Absolutely true. So the next question I have, of course, is, is there overlap between different programs? Because let's start with unemployment because the unemployment departments are absolutely getting crushed across the country, you know, and they can't keep up and they have to continually hire more people just to process the incoming calls. And some people have been furloughed weeks and weeks ago are still waiting for their first benefits. And this is a huge problem, of course. And then there's paycheck protection program. And between unemployment and paycheck protection, it's like, where are these employees going to make the most money? Because unemployment is also announcing the fact that on top of your regular benefits, certain people will qualify for an additional $600 a week, depending on you know where you're at. Paycheck protection says that the business can obviously be forgiven these loans, provided 75% of the funds that they're approved for you know, take care of payroll and to bring these people back and to rehire them and all of that. So 
Are any of these groups that you're working with sort of applying for those relief programs as well? And will there be any overlap or will you be excluded from one if you've already taken advantage of another? And if these employees are already collecting unemployment and now they're getting additional funds, do they have to pay anything back? It's like begs that question. That's a great question. So the charitable work that we're doing is not um, replacement for, for unemployment in any way. Um, and in fact, it's very important that the money that the employees are getting from the charity is not meant to be severance pay. It's not meant to be an extra paycheck necessarily. It's actually meant to cover specific costs that the employee is struggling to cover. So examples would be, I've got a medical bill that I've got to pay. I'm going to get a grant oh, to pay excellent. for this medical bill. I my see. child, um, I have a tuition payment for my child's um, school. I'm going to get some help with that because I can no longer afford it. It, it or my rent. I can't pay my rent right now. And so we'll give a grant to help defer some of that cost. So it's actually in the context of the charity, it's, it's really for kind of life expenses that are coming up that the employee is struggling with. The charities are not created to, to maintain the employee's compensation in the way that unemployment Perfect. So actually, it's great that these that the employees are able to get unemployment if they're able to benefit from the stimulus packages, either through the, the, the loans that may be forgiven for the restaurants if they're eligible, then, then that's great. Uh, this, is a, this is an extra thing. That's fantastic. I had no idea. This is really good news. So that would be a huge inspiration for everyone listening to this podcast if you're inspired by this to get together because, you know, there's lots of independent restaurants that have banded together to have buying groups, you know, to get some of the economies of scale that we lose as independents versus the chains that have huge leverage in this business. So the same process or, you know, idea can can carry over to this to, to help our employees to pay all their incidentals that they can't necessarily meet today. I think that's, that's an awesome idea. Let's talk about the tax benefits a little bit, Sean, and are some of these groups um, receiving some sort of a tax? Well, what are the benefits exactly? Because there's IRS exemptions here. And, you know, unless you're a CPA or, uh, you know, a legal professional partner in major law firm that understands this stuff, I have no idea. Can you explain some of that? Right. So let's talk about the benefits, um, both for the charity. There's, let's talk about three people who are going to get benefits, and I'll talk about the tax benefits of each. Okay, tax thanks. benefits to the charity that, that, that's being created, the tax benefits to people that are giving to the charity, and then the tax right, benefits right. to the people who are receiving money from the charity. Okay. Uh, let's talk gotcha. about all three, and mm -hmm. let's talk about the charity first. So a charity collects money. Um, and it's going to use that money to make grants to individuals. The benefit that the charity gets is that it doesn't have to pay any income tax on the money that it receives. That It's exempt from income tax. That's why it's a 501c3. So all the dollars, and we hope it's going to be a lot of dollars that the charity receives, they don't have to pay any income tax on that money. So that's the benefit the charity gets. Now, the benefit that people that give to the charity they get an income tax deduction, right? So if I give to any charity, I get an income tax deduction for giving to that charity. Of and course. In the stimulus package, um, they increase the amount that's deductible this year for, for cash contributions to charity to up to 100% of your adjusted gross income. It was previously 60% um, and prior to that it was 50%. So if you actually have a lot of money to give, you can get a, a, potentially a, a larger deduction this year. 
Um, so that's, and that can be very valuable um, Absolutely. because you're, you're getting to deduct this money off your taxes. It's a big savings. And if you think about it, it's really almost the government is sharing in the, in the cost of, of, of giving to charity because they're saying, we're going to give you a discount on your taxes by giving. So any individual um, who gives um, is eligible uh, to receive this, this um, tax deduction. Okay. Um, now, of course, the benefit to the people that receive the money, they do not have to pay income tax on the money they receive from the charity. Um, they are, it's treated, it's like a gift, um, or it's also could be viewed as a qualified disaster payment. And so in both, in both cases, the amount that the individual receives is, is free of tax. So tax benefits going all around here. That's fantastic. That's a win, win, win. For sure. So we talked about this, uh, these rules varying state by state. Now, your firm and your, you yourself personally are specializing in this right now, and this will not be the last restaurant group that you represent. And at the end, I want to obviously ask you how we can contact you if other you know, industry professionals want to get more information or at least or even try to set this up through you. But do you, does your firm have you know, licensed to practice in multiple states? Are you national? I mean, you have different offices in, in different states as well. Yes. I mean, are you limited anywhere? So we have uh, offices across the country um, and we've set these up across the country. So no, we're not, we're not, we're obviously don't, you know, practice law in every single state, but we're able to set these up because this is a, a tax issue. And yes. so we're filing a tax exemption application and just setting up corporations. So yes, we've, we've set these up everywhere. Fantastic. You know, if there's anything else you want to talk about that I've missed in relation to this specific, you know, charitable uh, situation, let's please do that. Otherwise, I'd really like to shift now to your work with Mentor, and I'd like to learn more about what Mentor does, the different programs they're involved in, and then your work, of course, on the prestigious uh, culinary competition. That's very fascinating as well. Sure. So, absolutely. Let us know. Let's, I mean, did I miss anything? No, no, I think we really covered it. Um, you know, obviously there's nuances, you know, there could, there are state filings that have to be made, um, for a nonprofit depending on where you, you operate. But, um, you know, it's, I think it's easier to set these up than people think. And, you know, like you had mentioned, you know, people can do it for their individual restaurant group. If it's more effective, maybe you bring a few groups together, a few small restaurants, you know, together and, and you'll be able to set it up. It's not, it's not as hard as people think. Let me ask, ask one last question sure. regarding timeline of funding. Do you have any idea in sight when people will start to receive these funds? Have they started receiving money? They, they have. Yes, they have, they have started. In many cases, they have started. Like I said, once the money comes in, it, there's, you get the income tax deduction right away. Mm -hmm. And the charities are, are operating. They're, we're getting approval for these, uh, we expect, on an expedited basis. Uh, because the president has declared this to be a disaster, we are eligible for approval on an expedited basis. Um, and so we've, we've asked for that. Is there a marketing campaign for this? I mean, again, these high profile industry leaders have done this for their own organizations, but this has such range, far ranging implications across the country, you know, to help other groups similar. I mean, besides social media, um, what types of things are they doing to sort of spread the word that, hey, you two can you know, make a difference here? In terms of soliciting contributions for their own charities or informing other people about, um, about the ability to set this type of charity up? Yeah, more so that because that's the bigger idea here. I mean, they're making a huge impact on their own, 
But like I said, this has such a bigger impact that can be made if other people are inspired to, my restaurant's closed right now. I've got some idle time. I'd like to help others. I'd like to give back. This is a great inspiring idea. Let's talk about doing this. Um, that sort of thing. It's like the word is going to get around just the by word, who they no, are. Absolutely. You know, the word is spreading and, and I've had many calls from people who've heard of me from this restaurant, the other restaurant group, mm-hmm. which has been fabulous because, you know, one of the benefits of, of me, be, me being able to do it again and again and again is that it's easier, it's cheaper, it's quicker because the process is in place. The documents right. are, are in many cases similar. Everyone has their own uh, individual nuances. So we have this ability and we have a fantastic team at the firm who yes. is who's really working so hard on, on handling every aspect of it from the state filings to the federal filings, to the solicitation filings. So um, yeah, the word has gotten out. And, and then also, you know, a lot of accountants and other lawyers who may work with the restaurant group on other issues that are arising. I mean, restaurants right now are having difficulty with insurance recovery is a very big issue in restaurants right now. So, so, you know, my firm is helping people with that too. Oh yes. We're sharing in, you know, we're, we're helping, you know, if I have a client, I try to connect them in that way and and the other way around. And then rent abatement is another issue that's coming up a lot um, in restaurants too. And so as a big firm, we see a lot of uh, clients, restaurant clients in different spheres. And then we're able to make sure we're giving them full service and just informing them of the different opportunities where they may be able to help money. And all of it trickles down. Can you also speak, Sean, to this law, to the lawsuits that we're hearing about, you know, against the insurance companies that have maybe have exclusions in place, yet these restaurants are claiming that, you know, their places have been infected and that's the reason why they've had to close down or alter their operations. And, you know, I've only read some of the headlines recently about that, but you may be better informed. Well, I would say I'm a little bit informed. Um, you know, I'm not an insurance recovery expert, but I can say that Blank Rome has the leading, among the leading insurance recovery practices in the country. And so I've heard through speaking with my partners in that department about the theories they're coming up with, um, you know, forming classes to do this. You know, I obviously have spoken with a number of restaurant groups who are at the forefront of doing this and you know making making these claims. So I don't want to speak exactly to the arguments because I'd rather focus on articulating the stuff that I know best, but certainly if there are uh, clients who restaurants who are interested in learning more, they you know I'm happy to speak with them and and put them in the right hands and I know that our firm is is being very generous in reviewing uh, policies as a courtesy uh, to restaurant clients without without you know taking a dollar from people. And so, uh, you know, then from there, we, we advise on whether there's, you know, possibility of a claim. But yes, anyone who's interested, I'd be happy to, to talk more about that with. Well, that's Put them in, in the Connect them to the right person who, who's truly an expert at Blank Rome. I appreciate that answer. Thank you so much. It's obvious that your firm has broad ranging specializations that can help many different industries, not just hospitalities and restaurants, but that is a major issue right now. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about Mentor. Tell me everything that Mentor does, how long you've been involved and, you know, some of the benefits of that organization to the industry. And then obviously we'll, we'll focus on the competition after that. 
Sure. So I'll tell you a little story that really I was, this is probably seven or eight years ago. I think I was 30 at the time. And, you know, there was an accountant I knew who said, oh, you know, I'd like you to help out with this, this restaurant client. And, you know, I, I went to per se on, it must've been a Tuesday morning. And I was, you know, in a small uh, private dining room there with Thomas Keller and Danielle Balud. And, and I gave my thoughts on the internal revenue code. And it was really, you know, almost a slightly intimidating thing. I was a young guy. I mean, I knew who these people were. And here I am, you know, giving them advice on the internal revenue code. But I guess they liked what I had to say. And there was a, a, a lawyer who was on the board at the time, a guy named Joel Buckman, who, who passed away, but was a, really a mentor to me, a fabulous person. And he had, you know, you know I, he and I developed a friendship. He actually dated my aunt um, out of all, uh, you know, surprising things that benefits that came out of, uh, wonderful things that came out of, um, out of mentor, but you know, through Joel and developing relationships with Thomas and Danielle, my firm and I, you know, started getting more involved in the work. And then Joel stepped down from the board and and I took over and that was 2015. And so at that point, I really became much more integral uh, to to, uh, mentor. And at that point, you know, pre-corona, we had two big focuses. The first focus was training the United States team in the Bocuse d'Or culinary competition. So for people that don't know, the Bocuse d'Or is the culinary Olympics. It happens every other year. So it's every other January, odd number Januarys in Lyon, France. Lyon is like a culinary capital of the world. It is, it is for and, sure. Um, yep. And this competition has been going on for over 30 years. And countries um, all across the world gather together and each country gets about five hours to prepare a, a meat and a, a vegetarian plate. And then they're judges. It's, it's like a, a super high level top chef, but it's very culinary focused. The plating and the, and the quality of the food is super elegant and sophisticated. And, and so this happens every other January. And so mentor really for, it, it's a two year cycle. We select the United States team in November of, of the two years before. Then the entire next year, we train the team. Um, and then about 14 months later, they compete. And actually, um, really thanks to Mentor, which has been in existence for just over 10 years, the United States in 2017 won gold uh, for the first time in the entire history of the competition. And it was uh, really just you know a phenomenal um, testament to the dedication. And the training of these people. I mean, these people leave these these young chefs. They leave their job for a year, a year basically, and they train night and day um, in in the mentor training kitchen in California. And we have coaches that are employed full time to help train them. We design platters that they plate the food on. It's it's really an amazing thing. And you know, the goal is always to try to go for gold. And you know, we were successful for the first time in 2017. And I and I I'm sure we'll be successful many times again. So that's one focus is training the US team. The second focus is the um, stage program, which is we have a grant program. This is nothing to do with coronavirus, but this is a grant program where we give what we call stages, apprenticeships, internships to young chefs so that they can get a very specialized um, experience in the culinary arts. And then they bring that experience back to enhance uh, the culinary arts in America. 
And so it could be that someone applies for a stage and they want to learn about, you know, raw vegetables and how you, you know, you, you do culinary. I, I'm not a chef, so I'm going to butcher the words, but how, I, I know maybe it's not cooking if it's raw, but you cook with raw vegetables. Of course. And it could be anything. <laughs> it, it could be, you know, you know, very fine French techniques um, and they go all over the world and they get these very specialized experiences and then they, they bring them back uh, to, to the restaurants they work in or elsewhere um, and they they enhance the culinary arts in America. So we have a program, and many people apply every year. And we have a, a you know just like we have with the we were talking about with the grants on the Corona, a, you know, a objective criteria that we use to decide who who gets a grant. We give them out, and they report back to us. And the stories are unbelievable. That is fascinating. You know, this what an exacting process. I, I'm getting a sense that. It must be incredibly hard because there's so many talented young chefs out there. Are they young chefs that are just starting their careers? Are they veterans or is it a combination of both? It's, it's actually all young chefs. And yes. in terms of the Bocuzor, I don't know the specific ages, but they're, they're very young chefs. I think I'm 38 and I'm too old, I believe. Um, I, I don't want to, don't quote me on that, but I'm, no. I'm, I believe there are, there are age criteria. And it's actually for a head chef and a co-me. So, um, and the Comey is younger than the head chef, but they come from leading restaurant groups uh, across, across the country. Um, in, in the tryouts we've had, you know, really people from everywhere, Hawaii, New York and everywhere and everywhere in between. Well, you know, this sounds like, I'm sure you're familiar with the National Restaurant Association's Pro Start program, and I'm seeing similarities, although this is on a much grander, more prestigious level, of course, but the same idea applies. It's really to inspire young culinarians that have a passion for this business, and, you know, they give you a Bunsen burner or just a little cook stove, and they throw some ingredients at you, and these, and these kids train, you know, really diligently towards this goal. And what can you do to come up with a very creative dish to impress the judges in a limited amount of time, not knowing what those ingredients are and what you're going to do with it before the competition begins? And each state, you know, has a restaurant association and many of them also participate in the Pro Start program. So this seems like just a much greater extension to that simple idea. But it's, it's awesome that you're involved in that organization. It, it's really a pleasure. It's, it's, it's an honor and, you know, to 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 be able to do work, you know, as a lawyer, I didn't even really want to be a lawyer, to be honest. So, you know, I sort of ended up becoming a lawyer and I, and I love it. But, um, you know, I, I think I love it because I'm helping people. Um, and, you know, I'm not sitting there suing one company against the other. I, all, everything I do helps people. And so that I can use my legal skills, my tax skills and helping people. It's just, it's just such a, such a, a it's a great honor and a pleasure. I don't know how you have any free time between being a partner in, in a major law firm. You're also an adjunct professor at New York University of Law, right? So you're teaching yes. students. That's incredible. You're involved on the board of directors of Mentor. I mean, do you have any free time? Well, not, not as much as I'd like. Um, and, you know, that, that's an issue I, I try to work out. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I make free time. You know, I think, you know, as you get busier, you focus on and you, everyone has to take free time because it's the only way you'll be good at what you do. You know, you can't work 24 seven, 365 without taking a break because you'll just, you'll, you'll just go into overdrive and you'll, you'll, you'll fail. 
So I, I do take free time, but you know, I think as you get more mature and, and you're busier, you've got to focus on the people and the activities that are most important to you that really help you relax, that are meaningful to you, and and ultimately make you you better at at what you do. And then, you know, I think the other thing is that as you, if you love what you do, and I really do, sometimes work becomes pleasure, you know, and, and, you know, there's, there's fluidity between, you know, your clients and your friends. You mentioned skiing at the beginning of the episode. I'm a huge skier, you know, going on 45 years, (laughs) actually more than that. But nonetheless, I mean, I had quite a bit of skiing in this year until the season got cut short nationally, which is kind of a bummer because there's still great snow out there on the hill. And I went so far as it's an annual tradition. My daughter and I will literally hike or climb up some of the steepest terrain at our ski resort and we'll ski down after the lift shut down. We did that a couple of weeks ago. And now there's no trespassing signs anywhere because it became a huge thing. Everybody's skinning or snowshoeing or climbing up and skiing down. And okay, social distancing is now impacting every part of our life. Where were you skiing? Did you get much skiing in this year? Well, I didn't get as much in as I would like. Um, I did go, my wife and I were in Beaver Creek uh, over Christmas, and then I was in Sundance in Park City um, over, you know, the end of uh, January. So those were the two big trips. Now, nice. I, had, I was supposed to have been back in Beaver Creek, actually with our, our niece, who is, you know, two and a half. So that would have been her first time on oh, ski. Awesome. That was really a bummer. Yes. Um, and, you know, I had I had a, actually a couple of other little weekend trips booked. Um, I have an epic pass, so you know you I go. try to use it as as much as I'd like as I possibly can. You know, mm-hmm. living in New York City, um, it's a little bit more challenging just to go skiing uh, for the it weekend is. because you either have to take a long drive, or um, or you have to fly. And you know, I, I don't mind doing either. But um, so I did get some skiing in, not as much as I'd like. And, you know, you never know. I think they say actually some Breckenridge and Heavenly may reopen. Um, so I'm not holding let's my hope. breath, but, but let's hope if they do, I'll, I'll see you out there. Well, we're kind of kindred spirits. It's been a passion of mine for decades, and I will continue to ski until I can't walk anymore. Well, Sean... Thanks. It has been my absolute pleasure hosting you on the podcast. And our goal, of course, for this episode will literally be to inspire this industry. Whatever you can do, big, small, whatnot, do your part. Let's help rise the tide so that we can all come out the other side and emerge stronger, more profitable businesses and to help those that work for us that do so much to make our restaurants successful. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, and we will see you in the next episode. Thank you so much, Sean, for being a guest. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for tuning in, guys. You know, we can all do something, do a little or a lot to help this industry move forward. There's so many inspiring examples of this business rallying together, this hospitality industry, whether it's a company offering special deals and concessions that'll help with a product that'll help operators through COVID-19, or a large-scale you know, collaborative with these leading chefs of the world, really, that have gotten together to help the industry. Everybody can do their part. We're resilient, we're creative, we're resourceful. Think about what you can do to help the industry forward. So if that was an intriguing episode, I hope that you subscribe on iTunes if you haven't already, or opt in 
you know, go to our website, restaurantrockstars.com. Give us your email address, and this podcast will come to you every single week. So we certainly appreciate your tuning in. I also want you to know that we have founded a new Facebook group for restaurant operators and hospitality industry professionals. It's called Restaurant Rockstars Official. So it's a new place. Hopefully it's a forum for you to share your questions, your ideas, your challenges, your pain points, anything we can do to help this industry forward. So I encourage you to go to Restaurant Rockstars Official and join the group. Thanks again for listening, and please let others in the industry know all about the Restaurant Rockstars podcast if you're enjoying what you're hearing, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.